This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Mento LLC. Mento LLC Trade Consulting focuses on issues of duty minimization, recovery, and elimination, while also helping our clients with trade compliance issues of both the import and export nature and global cargo security. You can reach us at 978-317-3250 or email me directly at pete.mento at Mento LLC. From Washington, D.C., this is Trade Geek Podcast with your host, Pete Mento. You know, there are people that you meet in this industry that defy description. There are people that, that, that you come across in your daily life that you just never forget. We're fortunate today that we're going to meet one of those people. Admiral Andy Brown was a three-star admiral in the United States Navy. For those of you who have never served, that's not an easy thing to do. At one point, he managed the complexities of the movement of goods domestically and internationally and people for our U.S. military. He did it with a big team, had a lot of people helping him out. And the thing about Admiral Brown that I hope comes across in this podcast is he did it by working well with other people. He did it by finding the right kinds of folks, making sure that he found ways to work with them, built great relationships, and then always found a way to ask them how can he help them. From his early days as uh, a cadet at the Virginia Military Institute, all the way through his times at the very top of senior leadership at the United States Navy, Admiral Brown served. He served the military, he served the warfighter, he served our country, and he served his friends. He never made it about him. That's an amazing example. It's the first podcast of season three of 2021 of the Trade Geek Podcast. I'm very fortunate to call Andy Brown a friend of mine. I also don't call Andy Brown Andy Brown. I call him Admiral Brown because as a guy who walked around Castine, Maine at Maine Maritime Academy, I was taught to call people that were admirals Admiral Brown. I just can't do it. <laughs> um, he's an incredible man. And uh, it's people like him, my friend Chuck Forsyth, Phil Coughlin is another person that comes to mind, that when you're in a room with them, you shut your mouth and you listen. But at the same time, they're the types of people that also listen to you, and they never forget the things that you tell them, and it makes you really want to walk through a brick wall for them, because you know that whatever you needed for them, from them, they do it for you, so you do it from them. I've been fortunate that Admiral Brown has put me in the room many times to give advice and counsel to people that he thinks need to hear it. And also, he's put himself in a room with me to give me advice and counsel. I know there's a lot of young people who listen to the Trade Geek podcast. There's a lot of midshipmen at various merchant marine academies. There's a lot of people who've graduated who have taken roles in logistics firms and in logistics around the world from Maine Maritime, Mass Maritime, New York Maritime Academy. Please pay attention when I tell you that if there was a person that you should model your career after, it's this gentleman. <laughs> 
he's done everything right. And I am so excited to have Admiral Brown on the podcast today. Have a great listen and uh, be sure to subscribe. And for God's sakes, um, pay attention to this man's counsel. And with that, I give you Admiral Brown. Hello, everybody. I'm excited beyond words to have one of my favorite people in this whole industry on with us today, Admiral Andy Brown with the National Defense Transportation Association. I've been running him down for months to have him come speak with us. He dodges me at every turn. I think it's because he's so busy. Um, I don't think it's because he doesn't want to talk to me on camera or on, on mic, as the case may be. But Admiral Brown and I met a few years ago when I was still with Crane Worldwide in that position. I was fortunate enough to work on a number of projects with the American Warfighter. And there, our CEO, Mr. John McGee, had dinner with myself and Admiral Brown. And I just immediately knew I really like this guy. I like this guy a lot. And every opportunity I've had since then to sit down with him and have a conversation, have a text exchange, have a drink, um, or just share ideas, I have leaped at the chance. Um, Admiral Brown is in charge of the National Defense Transportation Association, which is an organization whose um, challenge, I suppose, is working with companies uh, all over the United States and the world to help support the logistics efforts of the American military and its infrastructure, if I have that correctly. But we'll get to more of that in a moment. I think what you're going to find most fascinating about Admiral Brown is how he got to where he is today. It is a very small fraternity of men and women who have managed to live the life that he has lived and to have ascended to the heights that he has ascended. And for a kid who walked around Maine Maritime Academy endlessly screwing up, having a friend who um, was so high up the military chain of command, it's still astonishing to me. No matter how many times he says, just call me Andy, I can't do it. I still call him Admiral Brown and um, I'm terrified when um, people call him Andy. I just, I say to them, what are you thinking, you fool? Don't you realize who the man is? But uh, absolutely can't thank you enough for coming on today, sir. And um, looking forward to the conversation. You bet, Pete. And I just got to say, you're the first trade geek I ever met. <laughs> hopefully, um, hopefully uh, not the last, but I love your stories. I absolutely love the origin story of Admiral Brown. And if you could just talk about how you managed to go from VMI to meeting Admiral Rickover to ending up working in logistics, I think that would, would one of the things you need to understand, sir, of the 100,000 some odd people who listen to this podcast, there's a, a, a faction of them, a few thousand that are Maritime Academy midshipmen. So we have a lot of people at Maine, Mass, Kings Point, um, even believe it or not, Texas A&M, if, if I think that's still open, who do listen to this that are very interested in military logistics careers. So you're speaking directly to future folks that want to someday have the positions that you were in. And I think they'd find it fascinating how you got to where you are. Well, Pete, I, you know, I went to VMI kind of on a whim and uh, kind of on a challenge from my uncle. And uh, I told all my high school teachers I was going to VMI and they, they just shook their head and <laughs> laughed and said, you know, they make you go to class there. It's not, <laughs> it's not like here where you can do whatever you want or you do whatever you want. So going there was kind of a, a reboot and um, it really reset my uh, 
my, I guess my habits and my focus and, you know, it was a matter of survival. And uh, one day I tried to quit. I called my mother and said, hey, mom, I, I want to go to Virginia Tech where all my buddies are. And which I knew would take me about seven years to get through, but that was okay. And she said, no, you're staying there. You're going to finish this. Click. <laughs> and that was the last time we ever talked about it. And the next two years went by pretty fast. And I, uh, you know, I was a bio major because like I said, I was going to go to Virginia Tech and, and I really wanted to go into forestry. And um the closest thing to forestry at VMI was biology. Well, it took me a couple of years to figure out that all these guys, they want to be doctors. <laughs> and so I didn't really want to be a doctor. So I started taking business courses and whatnot. My brother had been a supply corps officer in the Navy. And, um, you know, so I thought, well, that, you know, that I, and I had a Navy scholarship and stuff. And um, so I knew I was going to go in the Navy. So I started trying to go into logistics and, in the Navy Supply Corps. And um, so I started taking courses and whatnot. And, and the Navy ROTC was like, no, you can't do that. You, you're going to be the ship driver. That's it. I got orders to the USS Peterson out of Norfolk and SWAS school, surface warfare officer school. And that was, I was going to do that and then get out and go in insurance business that my dad had in a small town in Gloucester, Virginia. And um, but then one day um, the lieutenant goes, hey, Andy, um, the colonel got a call and, and we need to send three VMI cadets up to have an interview with Admiral Rickover because um, they didn't get enough volunteers this year for the nuclear power program. And they, the colonel wants to know if you'll go for this interview because you're qualified. And... Um, so I, I said, well, you know, there is a God, you know, maybe that's what he wants me to do. And I said, yeah, I'll go. And he goes, well, you got to go one thing. You got to go with a good attitude. And I said, that's no problem. I'll go with a good attitude. I'll try. And so, you know, I, at that time, I probably couldn't have taken the derivative of two X or something. <laughs> and so I, I'm sure I didn't do very well in the, technical side of the interviews and whatnot but the thing the whole day culminates in a in an interview with Admiral Rickover and we had about probably a hundred guys from all over the country there in their ROTC uniforms and I was in my VMI uniform I think the other two VMI guys were had pilot slots to go aviation in the Navy and um, so I was like the first one out of this whole room of guys that got called in to see Rickover and he, he goes, what the hell is a biologist doing in the Navy? I'm like, scratch my chin. Go, well, sir, I'm kind of wondering the same thing, you know. And uh, I tried to go supply corps. And he goes, what? What? Well, did they know you were going to be biologist when they signed you up? And I said, well, I'm thinking to myself, sign me up for what? This interview or, or gave me a scholarship or or what so i said well sir i don't really consider myself a biologist you know four-year degree what what hey commander if you studied biology for four years would you be a biologist yes sir i'd be a biologist so i was just like rolling my eyes <laughs> then he asked me if i was going to get married and he then he kicked me out of his office and there was another vmi guy coming in uh the office 
we've kind of passed in a passageway and uh and i rolled my eyes at him i went whoa and the, <laughs> the commander goes don't talk to him don't talk to him so none of us none of the three of us ended up getting picked up that day to go nuke power and i think i led the way by telling that that guy in the passageway whoa you know <laughs> i warned him yeah but, those, uh, those interviews were they're legendary like he would put people in closets apparently and yeah i was i, I was kind of expecting you know he was really up in age over 80 i think at the time and, and i was kind of expecting a little old man but he was right in my face he was coming across like leaning forward across the table looking right in my eyes and and i felt pretty relaxed and you know i just told him the truth and um he kicked me out and it you know but when i got back to the back to vmi the we have we always have a marine colonel in charge of the navy rtc there at vmi and um the lieutenant goes hey andy the colonel really appreciated you going to that uh, interview with rickover and I'm, I'm like that's not a problem and he he, he goes yeah, well, he called the Navy Supply Corps detailers and asked him if they would take you and do a favor for him. And, um, and uh, he, they, they said, yeah. <laughs> and the only thing is you have to agree to like report to Athens, Georgia, like two days after graduation. I'm like, sheesh, that's a no brainer. And so I went down to Athens, Georgia. And, and so I always credit Admiral Rickover for helping get me what I wanted which was to go into logistics in the Navy. But I always, still always figured I'd just do four years and, and get out. But uh, somehow it just kept going and going. Um, How many years? So it was almost 38 years. I started, I started on an aircraft carrier, John F. Kennedy, and I was the dispersing officer. And we had I had $13 million in my safe at the time we were deployed. So I met the ship over like off the coast of Spain, flew aboard in a cod. And I'm just like, man, this is, what have I got myself into? <laughs> and the, the guy I relieved as dispersing officer eventually ended up going to Leavenworth wow. for what he, what he did on the ship. And, and so I really dispersing was kind of a mess. And, um, anyway i survived that somehow May stop now, now, today it's all cashless you know it's everybody's check goes to the bank and and you know it's not a problem so that, that's something i wanted to talk to you about there so the the thing about the military that always really impresses me is the pile of responsibility that they're willing to put on very young people the the young folks that you see putting deadly ordinance on aircraft you know the fact that they they gave a what were you 22 at the time 21 yeah, about 22 yeah. 22 year old young man fresh out of college 13 million dollars in cash and they're like hey good luck kid you know and the person you're replacing took that. one thing they didn't teach me in uh athens georgia was how to use the calculator <laughs> <laughs> so you you could have screwed up and ended up yeah i mean the the level of responsibility. I've I had uh, two of my classmates, um, Jack Spratt, Stephen Spratt, and, and Brian Kirk. Well, Brian Kirk, I think, was like a weapons officer on Arleigh Burke. I mean, that guy was was launching cruise missiles at Saddam Hussein, and then, um, you know, Jack, I think, was an engineering officer on an Arleigh Burke. I mean, these guys millions of dollars of equipment and ordnance and stuff, and 
they're 21 years old. Yeah. I mean, they're 21. I we were getting drunk and and beating each other up months before. I I forgot how difficult it is to be an ensign on a ship. You know, brand new ensign officer, a lot expected out of you, all eyes on you. You know, all the crews watching what you how you react and what kind of pressure you can take and whatnot. And you're just a young kid. But my son is on a ship right now, and he he went there as an ensign. He's a JG now. But man, it it just brought back so many memories hearing him talk about. Well, I don't know if I can do this. I don't know if I can survive. I don't know if I, you know this and that. I don't know if, if I'm treating my guys right. I just had a guy die. I just had a guy get COVID. I just had a guy lie, you know, and these guys have security clearances and how do I do all this? And, you know, he's just having to figure it out. You know, I can't help them. They're all figuring out. You had to figure it out. Yeah. Everybody does, but it's a crash course for those guys. On the ship. You got to do it fast. Yeah. Well, an aircraft carrier is like the, that's the biggest beast of all. It was, and he, at that time, you know, it was, uh, you know, we, that was back before we had barcodes and stuff like that. You'd, you know, you'd send a guy into a storeroom to look for a part and say, hey, come back in two days and tell me if you can find it. <laughs> and to, today, but, you know, the standards are so much tighter, you know, the inventory accuracy on the most valuable parts is, of course, 100%. Back then, you, you're lucky if it was 70%, you know? So uh, it's, it, it's, I think in so many ways we've pro progressed and, and uh, you know, we used to just throw stuff over the side of the ship to get rid of it. Now it's all saved and taken off the ship and, you know, recycled and all that. So, it, I mean, we've come a long way. And, uh, you know, every day we had a fire on the ship and nowadays, you know, it's, it's much better because people don't smoke and we have proper storage and handling it's it's a much better situation today i, I would say it's 100 percent more professional in terms of safety and whatnot safety was a big concern of mine it had to be yeah i mean there's all those lives it, i yeah. remember the one time this big old, my suppliers was huge. Of course, I'm small and he comes running up to me in the passageway. He just takes his finger, pokes it in my nose. He says, you've got a dead man. And I'm like, oh my God, I've got a dead man. My career's over. Of course, I wasn't worried about the career. I was worried about the guy. I'm like, what happened? He goes, they don't know yet, but you got a dead man. And, then, and so I go off and it turned out it was this guy that I had told to go to the sick bay and get a uh, electrocardiogram because he was complaining of chest pains. And he came back and he said, no, they didn't do that test. And I said, go back down and get that test done. They did, he, they did the test and then about three days later, he collapses on the ship and dies. And then they looked at the electrocardiogram and said, you know, the guy had a problem, you know? <laughs> oh my gosh. But, you know, you see everything on an aircraft carrier. How old were you? 22. It's pretty heavy, man. The, I just never forget him poking his finger in my nose. You've got a dead man. That's a sinking feeling when they do that. Yeah. So then and there, you know, I started forming principles of, you know, what's the most important thing on this ship is safety. Yeah. You got to, even in the supply department, the most important thing, you know, you're not, we are on the flight deck sometimes during, vertical replenishments or underway replenishments 
but but there's so many things that are dangerous you know in storerooms and conveyors and and uh freon and electrical shocks in the galley and whatnot and so you know i i learned early on that that i was gonna enforce safety rules it was be one of my big things because i didn't want to have a no. lose a guy again you know all of us uh anybody who's ever worked on a ship your number one job is getting everybody home right you know more than anything is get, getting everybody home and then getting that ship back in one piece you can deal with anything else getting everybody home yeah so from the time ensign brown sets foot on the kennedy until you get first second and third stars as admiral what what was your what was your favorite job before you became an admiral so from ensign brown to captain brown what do you think was the, the your favorite job you had well i had a you know a series of great jobs i was went to naval air systems command after the ship and and ended up being the aide to the three star there i went into learned contracting there and uh, so i i have a contracting background which is uh I think helpful to any logistician to understand the legal aspects of logistics. And then, um, you know, went off to another ship, a small ship, uh, you know, the USS Leftwich and Admiral Dan Bowler retired. Admiral Dan Bowler was the CEO. We became really good friends. And, and we made, I mean, after the carrier, I could make supply scream, you know, it was, <laughs> it was well-oiled machine yeah. and, um, you know, we uh, we were able to do quite well, and you know, won all the awards that we that we could, and and whatnot. We were deployed out of Pearl Harbor, and you know, went went all all. I was probably gone, you know, two years out of the three years I was on that ship, and my young family was there in Pearl Harbor. But uh, then went up to Monterey, studied contracting there, and then. Uh, off to what we call our inventory control point and learned uh, inventory management, supply chain management. And that was really kind of a turning point. And it, that was aviation's focus. So I was kind of aviation focused all the way up. And then eventually I went back to a carrier, was the supply officer there. And then uh, coming out of there back to supply chain management in, in an 06 job, which was you know, supplying airplane parts to, you know, every, um, every platform we had. And that was about the time 9-11 happened. I, we were, I was in station in Philly. I remember going up to, up to New York to, to see that and, and all that really had quite an impression. And then of course, you know, that changed everything and we had to get a lot of ships underway and, uh, we had to supply the parts and, so the guy I was working with to supply a lot of the parts uh, was out in San Diego uh, at Air Pack, we call it. And uh, he goes, one day he goes, hey, Andy, I think you need to come out here and relieve me when I retire. And I'm like, that's the dream job you got there. No way they're gonna let me do that. And he goes, yep. And so next thing I know I'm out there, but the focus kind of changed to kind of a business focus. The the uh, And the aviators hated it, but you know, we, we had to have more of a business focus on how to fly. You know, what, what's the right number of flying hours per pilot per month, you know, so that cost isn't just out of, out of whack and you're not flying the wings off the planes needlessly, 
you know, the number one, you know, the, the pilot that gets the award is the pilot that flew the most number of hours, right? Well, were they efficient hours? Were they needed hours? You know, so the, the air boss, the three-star aviator out there changed all the rules and he made it more business focused. So being part of that was, was probably the most, uh, I think the most gratifying thing was to see the, the, uh, the senior leadership in aviation starting to take the business of, of uh, naval aviation, you know, take it seriously. And the things that we did, the unfortunate thing is, you know, it was like, uh, it was like a love and, you know, when the personalities leave and the processes aren't in place, then, you know, they lose the love and feeling. And uh, so they've had, you know, with the F-18 and starting with the F-18 over the last couple of years, they've had to relearn a lot of those lessons that we learned back then and thought that we had fixed. And so this is why I, I think it's important that, you know, processes become the, the focus and um, not, uh, not the personalities all the time. Personalities are great, but you know the best personalities get processes in place that are going to work when when people change out. And you know, in in the military, we have traditions, we have processes, we have. But a lot of times they break down, just like the Navy has just watched standings it went through a period of time, and they're st still continuing to fine tune that. But uh, you know, it's it's all a it's all a process, and and um, I think it, you know, like I said in the beginning, a lot of things have gotten better over time in many many ways. You know, we've integrated women onto ships and even on the submarines. We've they've brought you know a lot of uh, I would say a lot more professionalism to to the ships. Whereas you know, I used to have to do smell tests on guys when they come to work in the morning, and now they. You know, they've got aftershave on, you know, so I, <laughs> I, I think, you know, they, I think the women kind of raise the standards a lot. Um, so I, I, I never thought I'd be in charge of hosting Mother's Day on a ship. Um, but, you know, I, I think I was, you know, I was happy to do that and um, happy that, uh, you know, that, that there are women that are willing to serve in that capacity. And I see it in the maritime industry today you know there's there's women that get out there and they do do the same job that men do and, and yeah, there's a lot of captains and chief engineers that are women that i would declare their classmates of mine that are absolutely the, the women i graduated with i think anyone that i went to school with would, would agree that they were as competent if not more competent than any of us were they had to work harder they do oh you know. And so, so VMI, when I went there, we didn't have women, but, uh, you know, they took it to the Supreme Court, they lost that, and uh, yeah. thankfully they did, but, you know, when you look at the women that graduated from there, I remember, you know, a Marine Corps, getting a brief from a young Marine Corps captain, female, on logistics, and I'm like, man, where'd you go to school? She goes, I went to VMI, I'm like, sheesh, I'm, I'm proud, <laughs> I'm really proud, you're, I mean, squared away, sharp sharp women big ridiculous ring like you do yeah i don't have it on today but um it, it you can hit your head with it and leave leave uh, marks but speaking, uh, speaking of students at academies i gotta ask mm -hmm. if you if you were gonna give a piece of advice to a young up-and-coming uh officer who wants to have a long and successful career 
what would it be? Simple, something simple. Well, I would say always take jobs that progress your and challenge you. You know, you wouldn't take the easy jobs. You, you wouldn't base it on location or, or whatever. You know, you, when they call you up and say, hey, what kind of job do you want? You say, I want the toughest damn job you've got. And, and if you don't know what it is, then you have to rely on them. Sometimes you, you have a sense of what it is and you can tell them. But, but I think uh, challenging yourself to take the toughest jobs and not be afraid of, of uh, competing with others. And, you know, and then you just go out there and do the best job you can and things fall into place. Don't hit the easy button. No, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's uh, never want to do that in anything in life. Well, I, I know after you, um, you, you ran up uh, every single achievement possible and sort of walking around with a whole bunch of stars on your uh, collar, you eventually retired um, and decided to take a job doing something equally challenging, I think. And that's running a organization out of Washington, D.C. that does a lot of beautiful things and gave us an opportunity to meet. And that's the NDTA. And I'd love it if you take an opportunity to talk to us about what you're doing there, because you guys do a lot of work that if, I think if people were not actively engaged in supporting military and government contracts and that sort of logistics, they wouldn't know you exist, but you're massive and what you work on is massive. Well, I, I, NDTA, you know, it, it uh, kind of came up as an opportunity when uh, Admiral Mark Busby, Buzz Busby, was here as the president and CEO of National Defense Transportation Association, which really focuses on, you know, defense logistics. Um, Buzz was uh, asked to go over and be the maritime administrator, which he's now on January 19th, he's leaving. Uh, but he's done a fantastic job over there. So I was able to relieve a very, um, a very uh, innovative guy who had a vision for NDTA. Mm -hmm. But um, I think, you know, so they, they asked me to come on and, and, uh, and I, what I like about the organization is we have a mission. And of course, being from, from the military, it, and it aligns with the military. And some of it came from my time at Transcom as the deputy commander and, and and understanding what the relationship with industry and DOD is, is, you know, basically, you know, when we go to war, which at the time we were in Afghanistan and Iraq, and you just see that we don't go anywhere without industry. And, uh, you know, they're move, moving on ships and on planes and trains and trucks and you name it, and 3PLs, uh, you name it, all kinds of challenges to move things from place to place um, and you know industry was doing the major lift for us it wasn't just flying c-17s and and using uh, military sea lift command and whatnot it, it there it takes both the organic which is the navy based uh, or military based assets plus industry and so when we go to war you know most of the heavy equipment is going to be lifted by uh, commercial sea lift and the, most of the people, the soldiers and, and whatnot are going to be transported by air over to the theater. The thing that has changed and which is on our plate right now to be looking at is, is the contested environment. And when I talked about me being an ensign, 
you know, my, our biggest challenge was ourselves, you know, making sure we, we got those processes right. But today, when you do a underway replenishment, you can find yourself in a shooting situation being shot at. And so, I mean, I, we, I think we were in a shooting situation one time on when I was on the ship, but other than that, you know, but so people today on ships, if you're in a hot environment, you're going to be, it's contested, not only by cyber, but by physically, by uh, long range weapons and whatnot. Whereas we have not had to contend that in my career, I never really, we practiced for it. You know, when we, when we had underway replenishments on aircraft carry, you always had a, a you know, a, 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 some aircraft up in the air to providing close air support and, and protection. So, uh, but, you know, so we practiced it, but today it's a reality that, that they've got to be able to contend with. So um, I think that that's kind of in the next, you know, 10 years or 20 years, it's going to be our biggest challenge is how do we fight and provide logistics in a contested environment. And it, it, we haven't really had to do that since World War II. So my hat's off to the folks that are out there today practicing these things. You know, how do you do communications in an environment where you've been jammed? How do you do navigation in an environment? How do you, how do you continue to flow logistics when you're, you've been blocked cyber-wise? How, how do you pass, how do you deceive how do you how do you pass uh, you know how do you resupply in that type of environment? So there's there's uh, tactics and things that are being developed now that that will have to prevail, and they're new because they're, now things are you know World War II we had submarines and whatnot to you know to deal with, but now we've got that plus multiplied by about four or five other factors, and um, so I. I I think that's what I like is is uh, being able to think about things like that and provide some background and and just uh, our job now is is to for industry to provide input to the military as to how they think that would look. You know, it's not just a one way uh, flow of communication, and I think that's changed over the years. Where it used to be that when I was like when I first got to Transcom, it was like hey, well, what's our relationship with industry? Are we partners? Uh, no, it's, it's all contractual. It's, it's contractual. But, you know, to have trust on day one when something happens, like even in this pandemic, a lot of trust was in place so that industry has been brought in by DOD and they've been at the table to fight through things like how do you get mariners to an, a port overseas when the ports are closed, when the airports are closed, when they, each country has rules. How does, how would, can you, can a CIVMAR or, or a, even a contractor fly on a military flight? The answer is yes. And they made it happen, you know? So, so be, because they understand that there's this partnership between the military and industry, that if you want to keep that thing, uh, keep it all rolling, you've got to cooperate and and maybe do some things that you never have done in the past. So in a lot of ways, there have been a lot of 
lot of lessons learned out of the pandemic that apply to how you do logistics in a contested environment. It's, uh, it's been quite interesting. Um, and of course, now we're, we're keeping an eye on the, on the vaccine distribution and many of our companies are helping out uh, in that regard. But, uh, you know, I don't know if this helps you, Pete, or helps. Okay. The... No, no, I, I'm, 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 I'm running out of time here and I, I have to get to my favorite part of the podcast in a second. But the, the last thing I wanted to get to is you briefly touched on it, but you do have a life outside of the military in your job. You are a husband, you are a father, three Navy officers. Well, I think former, right? One of them, one of them's out now. One of them's out. Yep. Two pretty, of them went to VMI. Yeah. And you do have a pretty awesome dog. So, yep. I have a German shorthead pointer. She's, she's beautiful and she's a good bird dog. And every once in a while I get to take her out. And uh, my it's favorite, good. favorite time is taking her. Norfolk Southern has a huge uh, forest down in South Carolina and, and they, they have quail and whatnot. We were able to go out there a couple of times and just, uh, it's amazing to watch a dog, you know, work a, work a forest. And you, you are, you are a human being with, with other. Yeah. Know. I like to, I like to sail. I think sailing is probably my, the first thing instead of learning how to play golf, I learned how to sail. Who do we have to pay off to get on one of these America cups folks? And, you know, what's, what's looking into it now, but I want to go 60 miles an hour on a sailboat and see if we, <laughs> you in. Well, you, yeah, but uh, you can do almost as fast on a windsurfer, Pete. I no, you can. I can't. I'm the size of a mastodon. There's no way I'm getting up on one of those things. Well, they build boards differently now. You could get up. Oh, do they? Yeah. yeah. I think yeah. it's some rules of physics, sir. That ain't happening. <laughs> and now, before, before even I, on a windsurfer, now there's foiling. Really? But there's a big debate going on as to whether um, they are flying or whether they're sailing. And uh, the next America's Cup, you might find the hulls back in the water. No. It depends depends on who wins. Hey, if we win, I don't care what it is. If we win, they can we can put jet engines on them. I don't care. That's my favorite part of my podcast where I get to ask you three questions that have nothing to do with logistics. Are you ready? Yes. Question number one, what was the first car you ever actually owned um, and what happened to it? I had a Toyota Hilux uh, what is a Hilux truck? It's like a, it's a very, it's almost like a, you know, it's a, it's a real tough truck. It wasn't a four by four, but it was a tough truck. And I think I bought it for like 350 bucks and ended up locking up. Where'd you, so you, it just died on you? Yeah. I tried to blow up the engine and it wouldn't blow up, but it, I think the uh, timing belt eventually went. How old were you? And, and I think I went off to college. I'm not sure what happened to that car. I went off to college. And what is it directed for you? Probably one of my brothers took it and yeah. never saw it again. First job you ever had that actually gave you a paycheck? Um, I guess it was a paper route when I was like in the fourth grade. But uh, would they pay you? I don't, I don't, I'm not sure what they, they probably gave me a, yo-yo or something yeah i think paper routes are an important thing do they even have them anymore um i'm not sure yeah i think some there are some when's the last time you bought a paper i buy i've subscribed to our local paper in town so it comes by mail last time i bought a physical paper was when i was in london this time last year and it was glorious i sat in the pub 
and I drank a couple pints and I read two papers and I was so happy. I was so happy. Well, the local paper, you can get what the tides are doing and uh, what time church is going to be and <laughs> stuff like that. It's pretty cool. What time but, steam locomotive is coming through town in Gloucester, Virginia? Where to buy dirt, <laughs> stuff like that. All right, question number three. I want you to assume that physics and time and space do not exist and that I have a magic wand and old Uncle Pete here can give you any job ever. And you can have any job other than anyone you've ever had. Um, what would that job be? Oh, I'd, I think I'd love to deliver sailboats or something. Okay. that's No one's ever said that one. And that's an awesome job because I have friends that do that and they are very happy people. Deliver well, maybe you can help me talk to them. The, uh, yeah, I can crew, yeah. but, uh, you know, at, at my age, I'm not sure I'm going to be able to pull that one off, Pete. And, you know, as you, when you go through transition classes and, and, you know, getting ready to get out of the military, they, they always say, well, you know, what's your dream job? Just same question you asked. And I wrote that down. They're like, you're not going to be able to do that, you know? Says who? Well, I mean, and make a living. And uh, so... Every year, Wit and I get um, maybe a little too overserved at Mastro Steakhouse in DC. And every year we say, we're going to bear boat a boat in the Bahamas or Bermuda or Turks and Caicos. And we're going to sail it to a couple islands because we all know how to sail and blah, 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 blah. And we never do it. Well, we can, we can do it. Yeah, damn right. We can do it. I got a buddy who's a cardiologist. It's, it's, he's got all the certifications and so, and he could uh, take care of us if something happens. So that's an excellent point. We should do that. I, I am licensed still, I think. And, you know, last time I checked, all of us know how to sail and I can mix a hell of a margarita. So I'm pretty sure we could get from one place to another and take our time. It's just, I think a physician would be a very useful thing. It'd have to be a pretty big boat, like a 50 footer. Yeah, very, very big boat. Lama Brown, um, before we go, I want you to know that, um, you made an excellent point at the beginning of this. Your career started because you did a favor for somebody. You yeah, I mean, almost every every job I ever have gotten is somebody's helped me. But one of the things I've never forgotten about you is every time that we talk, it seems like you say, listen, Pete, is there anything I can do for you? You just let me know. That still if holds true. <laughs> if you need anything from me, you just let me know. You need to call somebody, let me know. That's the kind of guy you are. I think anybody who knows you knows if they need anything, you are sincerely there for them. You are one of the most sincere people I know. And I think it's how you've gotten where you are by being the kind of person people can depend on. And um, on behalf of anybody who's ever worked with you and ever known you, I think it's important that you know that we really appreciate that about you. And there's a lot of, there's probably hundreds of thousands of people out there that owe something of their career to the fact that you've been doing favors your whole life. So at least on my behalf, thank you for all the things you've done for me and all the doors you've opened and all the kindness that you've shown to me um, way beyond just being on this podcast. You're a hell of a friend, a great professional and a good man. Works both ways, Pete. And you've been a good friend to me and, and uh, hopefully we can keep this going and whatever I could do for you, please let me know. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much, Admiral Brown. I right. look forward to seeing that, you. That, that applies to anybody. Yeah. All right. Take, Take care. care. See as we enter into 2021, there's still a lot of questions that we need to have answered, not the least of which, how will the United States end up responding to a pandemic? One that's still here, frankly. Can we expect more lockdowns? How will a new president 
end up making decisions regarding numerous trade wars, how will a new Customs and Border Protection react to trade? What will a new England and a new UK look like outside of the European Union as a Brexit truly takes shape? And how will China react to its new position in the world? These are fascinating times for people involved in trade. And I'm really hoping that in 2021, we can continue to bring you amazing content here at Trade Geek. Thank you all so much for listening. Thank you all so much for supporting us. If you have any topics or any people you'd love to see on the podcast, drop me a line at pete.mento at Mento LLC. And also remember, if you send us a question that you'd like me to answer live on the air and we use that question, I'll send you a autographed Trade Geek poster suitable for framing that I'm sure all your friends will be jealous of. Um, and this week's question uh, actually came from someone who was anonymous. And that question is, do I believe the United States will enter into a free trade program with the United Kingdom? That's an easy answer to, uh, to give you. We will. We've already got something negotiated. I think it's only a question of time before Biden um, uh, pulls the trigger on that. Um, the second question comes from Allison Green. Um, Allison has asked if I believe that we will have 301 tariffs into uh, 2022 and um, with China. Allison, I believe uh, the answer to that is a pretty simple one. Um, I think that these tariffs will probably remain um, through 2021, but I don't think that we'll have them in 2022. I think that the Biden administration will try to make quick work of these. I think that the 232 tariffs with aluminum and steel will probably no longer remain. Um, they're not politically expedient any longer. I think that's a, that's a quick political win for a President Biden. And with that, that's it for the questions and answers this week. Don't forget, I have a television show, um, pretty exciting one, Global Trade This Week. It comes out every Thursday. You can catch it on YouTube or there's a link for it on um, on LinkedIn. If you're not following me on LinkedIn, that is where I put all of the newest information about global trade. You can get me there, of course, uh, Pete Mento on LinkedIn. And every other week, uh, our good friends at TAPA have sponsored um, the um, Trade School Live, Trade School uh, WebEx. And with Trade School, every other week, we pick areas of training or new areas of interest regarding international trade. And we give a live training where I go over a PowerPoint presentation and video, and we discuss issues of live interest, whether they are trade compliance related, economics or logistics, sometimes I have a guest, and we um, go over them live, I answer questions. All of those past episodes are available on the TAPA website, tapa.org, if you would like to check those out. Again, thank you all so much for supporting me, uh, supporting the podcast and all of my educational endeavors. I really can't tell you how much it means to me. I'll keep doing it as long as you keep asking for it. I'm hoping all of you have a healthy, prosperous, and wonderful 2021. We'll be back soon with another episode of Trade Geek.